Hello, Tony. Thank you for meeting with me to discuss mediation law and civil practice, which is the title of one of your books on mediation in the UK. Just very briefly for our listeners, you were a senior litigating partner for about 30 years in which you represented parties in some of the very first mediations. You became an accredited mediator in 1996. I know you've mediated a wide range of matters, although these days you're doing more clinical claims disputes than anything else and really regarded as a leading mediator in this area. You've also written extensively, you write extensively, particularly for CEDA, but a number of books too, about mediation, um, notably the author of Mediation Law and Civil Practice in the UK. So you've seen it all, you've done it all, and you've written about it all since mediation took off in the early 1990s in the UK. So I would like to ask you a couple of questions relating that experience to what is happening in South Africa these days with the new Rule 41A that has been introduced into the High Court practice. And perhaps to start off by asking you to just talk about the pre-litigation stage, because in our Rule 41A, there's an obligation to serve a notice in relation to mediation on the other party. How does it work in the UK and, and how has it evolved as mediation has become more and more established? Well, um, we don't have quite that arrangement in uh, England and Wales. Um, what we do have covering the pre-litigation stage is a series of protocols uh, which cover pre-action behaviour and which seek to define good, reasonable pre-action behaviour. And coupled with that, uh, the rules that were amended and placed in effect extensively and reformed in 1999 provide that the courts have got jurisdiction to penalise or sanction, if necessary, misbehaviour prior to issue of proceedings. Obviously, they can only do it once proceedings have started. But it's quite clear that um, judges have got the power to impose penalties on people who misbehave before proceedings are issued. For instance, issuing without any warning at all and any justification, without um, seeking to set out what their claim is and perhaps also to investigate possibly settling it. If you do that, you are very unlikely to get your costs, even if you win. So that is the two-pronged way in which pre-action behaviour is governed. And indeed, there is quite a lot, a pretty considerable amount of pre-issue mediation in this country. And it happens because people are slightly afraid that if they get it wrong, they might be penalised. The, the penalties are not all that often imposed, so they lurk under the surface, as it were, and operate on the minds of those who are advising parties as to how they should behave and what they should do. And certainly each of the pre-action protocols, and I think there's somewhere like 18 of them covering different sectors of work, at some point, they all say you must consider ADR before the action starts and have good reasons for not doing so, which clearly at a later stage, a judge can penalise if, if someone gets it wrong. How long did it take for that to become established and for, for litigators to become used to that? Well, it, it took a little time uh, because the rules were not specific when they came in in 1999. But as soon as the rules came in, which said that judges had the power to sanction unreasonable behaviour, I found myself uh, writing and Cedar saying generally, it could well be that a judge would penalise as unreasonable behaviour an unreasonable refusal to mediate. Mm. Uh, but it 
took for three years uh, after the civil procedure rules came in for uh, a judgment to be published in the Court of Appeal called Dunnerton Rail Track, uh, in which the Court of Appeal penalised a successful appellant or a successful respondent, I should say, who had won on appeal, but penalised them by not giving them their costs because they had as the court found, unreasonably refused to mediate the appeal. And this really caused a shooting up of eyebrows in England. Uh, And all of a sudden, people realised that judges were sending out a firm signal that mediation had got to be taken seriously, and that if it wasn't, they might well find themselves on the receiving end of judicial disapproval in in, in a financial way. And, And I'm sure that this is one of the main drivers for the growth of mediation since that time. And then what else have judges done at later stages of the process to either encourage early settlement through mediation or punish a failure to do so? Well, there's certainly been a good number of cases where they have sanctioned parties who they find have unreasonably refused to mediate or completely ignored an invitation to mediate. It is not safe even simply to, as it were, assume you've never been asked or assume you've never been ordered to mediate by a judge. To ignore an invitation or a direction to mediate is flirting with danger in in the English system. You may say, well, what more positive steps are being taken? And the answer is the climate is changing and uh, developing quite dramatically. It's really quite a time of, of, of development as we speak now. There was a report published by the Civil Justice Council, which is the main advisory council about civil justice, which is chaired by the head of civil justice, the master of the roles, uh, which came out last summer, saying that um, there is nothing inherently upsetting to human rights, uh, particularly Article 6 of uh, the European Convention of Human Rights, which governs English law, that uh, is offended by courts actually mandating mediation, actually ordering people to do it. And this uh, has not been embodied yet. People are digesting that comment and deciding whether and if so, how to introduce it. But even without that, for a number of years now in the High Court, uh, judges have made directions that people must consider uh, mediation at all times during the life of a case. And that if they turn it down, they must, at the time of turning it down, file evidence as to why they refused to mediate. So you can't simply wait and hope that there'll never be a trial. And of course, trials actually are reducing in number very considerably and not all that many cases get to court. Perhaps fewer than 5% of cases across the spectrum actually reach a judge ever. So there's a relatively low risk you're ever going to come in front of a judge who's going to penalise you for having failed to mediate three years before. But because you are obliged to file a witness statement explaining why you refused mediation at the time that you refuse it, judges can measure that backwards as and when they are invited to do so, not simply accept some sort of drummed up excuse from someone who has just won the case last, last week and, uh, and therefore thinks that they can get away with having refused to mediate it in the first place. So there is a very firm expectation built into court directions that people should try it, which you ignore at your peril. The truth of the matter is, I think in in commercial cases now, general commercial cases, it is a rare case that gets to court without there having been a mediation tried in the first place. 
in clinical negligence, there is a, a clinical negligence mediation scheme, which uh, has been increasing in size over the uh, over recent years. And indeed, a report was published yesterday by the House of Commons Health and Social Care Committee, recommending that mediation should effectively become mandatory before proceedings are issued in clinical negligence claims, because it offers things, adds value to the process of making monetary claims, uh, which you can't get if you simply go to court. So um, we also have a reforming master of the roles, the head of civil justice, who is very keen to see that mediation grows. Judges now are being appointed who themselves were mediators or advocates at mediation in, in their life as barristers and solicitors. They know now what it can do. And that is also making a transformation to judicial attitudes to mediation. People are beginning to realise judges that, that judges know what they're talking about. And the early days of mediation, when judges had never been anywhere near mediation before they became a judge, um, have gone. We, we find in conflict dynamics with the cases that we're handling uh, that are related to 41A, a party might say, I'm not going to mediate because this matter is not suitable for mediation. And so they decline. So in what circumstances would a matter not be suitable for mediation? It's very hard to decide emphatically and clearly what makes a matter inappropriate for mediation. There's really hardly any matter which at some stage in its life is not suitable for mediation. And judges over here have largely dismissed arguments that a case was unsuitable. Uh, in fact, they find very positively that the, the vast majority of cases are at some point suitable in life. It's not an argument that would wash well with judges over here. It may be a matter of timing, but equally, the later a case happens, a mediation happens in the life of a, of a case being litigated, obviously, the more evidence has been exchanged and you can be clearer precisely which way it's likely a, a judge will go. Although, frankly, litigation all over the world is something of a lottery and it's never, difficult, never easy to predict precisely what's going to happen. And of course, if you mediate a case before issue, the, the information, the evidence, is not all in place uh, and you have to take a more broad brush approach because of that but experienced lawyers are paid well to be able to give their best advice to people whenever they're asked to give it and uh, certainly uh, we I have seen a trend in clinical negligence claims that I've been mediating in recent years that uh, they have increasingly been uh, convened um, before issue uh, and and this is not in any way impacted upon the settlement rate, the sooner, and, and the parties themselves, and frankly, it's their litigation, and not their lawyers, are delighted to get out of litigating, which is not a job or not a, an activity that they enjoy. Very often, we're very not at all keen to get involved in, in the first place, because it didn't really seem to be likely to give them what they really wanted, the things like apologies, explanations, and acknowledgement that lessons have been learned by things that went wrong. But that sort of experience, I think, spreads across other types of litigation as well. There are very few people who actually really enjoy litigation. Those that there are are probably either lawyers or rather determined people of principle who uh, would be very welcome as clients. The, the other thing we find very often is a reluctant party, or in fact, sometimes both parties will say, we have to do this, we're, we're going to do it, but we only need an hour or so, because they see it largely as a tick box exercise. So how in the UK, England and Wales have judges 
dealt with, let's call it good faith mediation, actually spending the time, putting in the energy and seriously trying to negotiate. I feel slightly uneasy about enlisting the aid of judges to ensure that mediation is engaged in, in good faith. I think this goes to the whole heart of the question is, and I've seen it mentioned in, in, in writing in South Africa as well as in England, you know, mediation has got to be voluntary for it to work is the kind of way it's put. And that definitely needs explanation and expansion. Once people get to a mediation, it is undoubtedly right that it should be entirely voluntary for people to continue in that process. Once they've got into the mediation suite, once they're there, they must be free to say, what you're saying to me is not acceptable, what you're offering is not acceptable, or I, I, and I don't agree with you, and I'm going back to court. There must be absolutely no fetter on anyone saying that, and there must be no criticism possible of someone who says that once they've arrived at the mediation. But I do not accept that engagement in the first place in mediation need be voluntary, or putting it another way, I don't see any evidence that requiring people, putting pressure on people to go into mediation, actually prevents them from settling. Once people get to the mediation suite, it seems to me it's up to us as mediators to persuade them to stay, to check out whether their interests are uh, clear, whether they are, where their best interests might lie, for them to revisit them, for them to revisit their risks of not getting exactly what they want, and to see whether what comes up might actually be more attractive than than pressing on to court. But if they, at the end of the day they are not persuaded that what emerges is acceptable uh, or enough, well then that's fine, and they must be free to reject it without any fear of judicial criticism. So that's why I'm hesitant about encouraging judges to kind of get involved in deciding whether someone continued at a mediation in good faith. And if someone comes as a tick box exercise, and frankly, I, in 20 years of mediating, I think I've only ever had one case where there seemed to be the slightest hint that people had only come, as it were, to satisfy the provisions of a dispute resolution clause. They still stayed for three and a bit hours, and they could have pretended to listen, but I was fairly sure that at the end of the day, what they wanted to do was go off do, to, to engage the second half of their dispute resolution clause and get an arbitrated decision about it. Nevertheless, um, generally speaking, I see very little evidence of tick box activity here. Perhaps that's because the mediators are so persuasive about the, the value of the process and staying to engage in the conversations. Yeah. But I'm quite clear in my mind that voluntary mediation does not mean any more than that people are free, must be free to leave once they get there. I think getting people into mediation, whether it be by judicial pressure, fear of cost sanctions, commitment to a contractual term that requires it before you're allowed to go to court, none of that actually um, takes away from the value of the process or actually, frankly, much prevents the prospect of, of, of settlement once they arrive. Yes. Now, you've talked about the impact of judicial intervention, and so on. What has changed in the minds of barristers and solicitors that they are so much more inclined to mediate in England and Wales than ever before? Well, I think there's growing experience that it's actually a good process. I mean, certainly in my sector, it only started because the NHS litigation authority, the NA, or now called NHS Resolution, which is the body that runs the defence, rather like an insurance company, a state 
owned insurance company, which runs the defense of all claims against NHS trusts, now against all NHS GPs as well, took a view that they ought to check out how effective mediation was and ran a pilot, which was successful, and decided that they would make this um, a regular way of trying to settle um, clinical claims against NHS hospitals. When they made that decision, I'm pretty confident that very few defendant lawyers who acted for the NHS and very few claimant lawyers who acted against them wanted it. They were unpersuaded, but because NHS resolution, in effect, held the purse strings so far as their own panel solicitors were concerned, uh, and indeed were the people who would be paying damages and costs to claimant solicitors, because they said to their own panel solicitors, we require you to get claimants to mediate. We're going to see give mediation a proper crack of the whip in clinical claims. They did it. And gradually, law firms on both sides of the divide, and they are very separate sectors in this country, you, you, you can only either act for claimants or defendants when it comes to NHS, have done it, have been running it now, involved in mediations for five or six years while the scheme has been running, longer actually, probably seven years, nearly eight now. And, and they are getting used to it. They know how to, how, how, how to work at it. They know what's needed. They know the kind of things that claimants like to be able to do. They, defendant lawyers know what kind of things claimants like to hear from trusts. They are alive to the non-monetary benefits of the process. And so they are getting increasingly enthusiastic and experienced. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly my impression, at least, in, 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 in commercial, in general commercial law. Um, but the, the, the lawyers dealing with that matter realise that it's got to happen. They, it may be that they're resigned to its happening, they know at the end of the day, if they were if they were flagrantly failed to use it, they might their clients might get a, a, a rap on the knuckles from the judge. So they use it, and settlement rates are high, and satisfaction levels, I think, are broadly speaking very high. They sh- mediation shortens litigation; it saves money on litigation because it shortens it, and. Um, and, and, and so I think there is growing enthusiasm. And now that judges are being appointed who have been involved in mediation for a number of years before they were appointed, led by a judge who is very keen to uh, make sure that mediation grows and um, and is located properly and is determined to take the alternative out of dispute resolution, we now at worst, have brackets around the A and ADR in this country. And um, and certainly there is growing termination to make it even more part of the scenery for, for civil justice in England and Wales. Right. Now, attorneys and, and advocates, as they're called in South Africa, are often wary of mediation and sometimes say, why would we want to? encourage early settlement when we lose out on fees and earning. Now, I know that in England and Wales, we had the Jackson reforms some years ago, which related to co- to budgeting around litigation. Yep. So h- how in this country has the loss of revenue through mediation not persisted as a point of resistance of mediation? <laughs> Any practicing lawyer who said to a judge, I refuse to mediate because you, it's going to reduce my earnings, would be shown the judicial door, I suspect, very fast. It's not a very attractive 
line to take. And it may be true that under the surface, lawyers litigate to uh, generate money, and as we would call it in this, in this uh, jurisdiction, churn litigation as a money spinner. Uh, it's, it's a disgraceful idea. That is, that they are not serving their clients' interests if that's their motivation. Uh, I'm dead against it. I think that lawyers are probably, could never articulate that as a motivation for themselves in, in this country. And I'd be very surprised if any lawyer will honestly tell any public uh, forum that that's what they were in uh, the practice of law for. Lawyers are extremely adaptable. They, if one door closes, another door gets open. I have little doubt, that, and, and certainly quite major structural changes were made to the costs regime in this country by the Jackson Reforms Act introduced in 2013. Lawyers have adapted to that and restructured the way they run their finances and, and, and are doing all right. So I, I, I'm not going to lie awake at night worrying about that particular topic. <laughs> and they should not use, I mean, the other thing to say about mediation is this, that um, there is another approach to uh, the value of mediation when it comes to earning costs, and that is, uh, if you can mediate a, cost, a, a case quickly and get it settled, uh, you get paid quicker, you have, and, you, and a happy client leaves your offices. Uh, you may find yourself uh, doing more, uh, more cases and settling them, but that's because the clients recommend you to your friends and they come back because they are, their, client, their friend was happy. Your cash flow improves because you get through your cases more quickly. And I would have thought that was a rather more attractive prospect than grinding on through litigation of dubious outcome where you are inviting a, a stranger, namely a judge, in quite unpredictably to make a ruling which could just as easily go against your client, leaving you with extremely embarrassing conversations at the end of a failed case. Uh, whereas the client who signs off on the settlement agreement, which you've helped them craft and uh, in which you have helped them adjust to, uh, and they have agreed consensually, is, a, is, is inevitably going to be a happy client. So I, I, I'm not impressed with the loss of earnings argument. Indeed, I would stand it on its head and say, settling cases more quickly is, is a very desirable professional objective. Anything else you can tell me that would be useful for South African litigators and judges to hear about the value of mediation and really how to get it up and running in everybody's Yes, I mean, well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, but what I'd say is this, that it really does benefit from being judge-led. And, and it will benefit from judges being brave enough to be robust when it comes to exercising powers of criticising parties, maybe sanctioning parties, as you're telling me there's a recent case where a judge refused to uh, allow any costs in a case where a step was taken which he believed ought and could easily have been sorted out by mediation. Um, but you've only really got that case in the case of Brownlee, as I understand it, where judges have actually stepped in and robustly penalised people for not out of the ordinary course of expectation for not mediating. It's when the judges started doing that, it's not government-led statute-led changes of rules that really do the business. What really happens is, what, what really makes things happen is if the judges make it clear that this is what they want to do, have got the powers to do it, and 
are robust in, in uh, using those powers. We found in this country, and uh, have found in this country, that just a few well-publicized decisions where sanctions were imposed had a hugely disproportionate effect on legal practice. Uh, people immediately thought to themselves, well, it might be me next time. And, and so they modified themselves. But I please, really, people should not be frightened of mediation. It's an extremely useful tool. And the important thing is, one, that it's all confidential and off the record, so that nothing that happens in mediation, if it doesn't settle, lead to settlement, can be used against anyone. And I always tell parties that at the beginning of every mediation that I do. Um, and secondly, no one can be criticised for refusing to settle. But the fact of the matter is that what I do find is that when you're, when you're in a mediation, because people are freed from fear that they anything they say can be, as they used to say, used in evidence against them, they move huge distances because their clients essentially do want to settle and would much rather have the certainty of, well, you might say, certainly of, of, of second best, or, uh, or as you said in South Africa, second prize, uh, rather than striving for first prize when, it, when they mightn't get a prize at all if they actually go in front of the judge. Restoring control to the clients in an environment where they are free to express themselves with any fear that it can bite them back if settlement doesn't happen is an enormously powerful tool. Uh, and you will find out things that you perspectives on cases and on facts that you you didn't realize might be used and against you or, or, or for you for that matter. Uh, and, and you get so much better informed and you do have the freedom to walk away if it really simply won't do. Well, I think we've got a great deal of mediation advocacy training ahead of us, and I'm pleased to say that uh, we have this rule in place and we have judges who are keen to promote mediation and encourage early settlement. So hopefully things will work out well. I should be looking with great interest at in how things develop in South Africa. So there, there are ways, the Brownlee case, for instance, already is took things in a way that has not happened in this country, the penalising of, of a solicitor against being able to claim costs from his own client. Is, is, is a startling idea and I was always I was struck by that whenever I heard it so I shall be looking with great interest at how things develop in South Africa and I suspect you will find ways of pushing things along there which we shall be interested to uh, think of, of employing ourselves here too as well as anything else that we might do here that might be of interest to you there. Thank you Tony thank you very much.